You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 70. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. So, without further ado, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first half of Chapter 21 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you aren't up to date with this story yet, you can find the beginning in Episode 24. Once you've caught up, follow me onward to this week's spoilerific story recap. Lady Sephra Hinlossos never asked for any of this. She went to the Telvari Rift because her friends needed help. They knew something was alive inside that forbidden mana nexus. A generation ago, the scientists of Project Lightpath had attempted to make contact with it. But then the accident had happened, and the Lightpath team disappeared, including Dr. Cynthia Raines, the team's second-in-command. Fast forward 25 years later, and Cynthia's son, Hal Raines, made his own journey to the Rift. He wanted to know what had happened to his mother, and hoped the entity in the rift could tell him. Sephi's job was to perform the arcane ritual that would contact the creature. Several of their friends also went along, each for their own reasons. None of them had expected what happened next. The rift was not home to just one entity, but to a whole population of them, a psychic group mind known as the Great Chorus. These energy beings fed on the Rift's life-giving mana. Some of them reached out to Hal, to Sephi, and to some of their other friends. But then, disaster struck. A surge of power came from the Rift, and these unseen creatures became trapped inside the minds and bodies of Sephi and her friends. The would-be explorers were knocked unconscious by the blast, and in the wake of this surge of magical energies, their bodies began to change. Sephi went blind, but in exchange, she gained extraordinary powers of extrasensory perception. Sephi had never asked for psionic powers, either. She certainly never asked for the visions that now plague her, visions of a terrifying future in which Metamore City is destroyed in rains of fire, while the dark entity broods over the city, gathering the souls of the dying to itself. But Sephi's powers have made her a target— and now she has been captured by agents of the Vampire Prince, Malcolm Ardvalos. Malcolm himself came to visit Sephi in her prison. As soon as they touched, Sephi knew who Malcolm was. He caught a glimpse of the nightmare future she has witnessed, and she spoke a prophecy against him. He would not live to see the death of his city, for his enemies are already plotting his destruction." The White Widow is weaving her web beneath him at this very moment. Malcolm was deeply shaken by this, and demanded that Sephi tell him who the White Widow is. Instead, Sephi went back into a state of suspended animation, conserving her energy while the vampire's medical equipment works to keep her alive. Malcolm told the doctor on duty to give Sephi one hour to rest, and see if she is willing to tell them anything else. If not he is to hand her over for questioning by Malcolm's enforcer, a sadistic death magic user named Fisher. Fisher. 
Things Unseen, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 21 Slithering, twisting, gut-wrenching pain. It came in waves, rising and ebbing but never ceasing. An ocean of pain, and she was drowning in it. Pain and darkness. She knew nothing else. She could not recall who she was. The answer seemed more complicated than it should have been, and the pain drove her beyond rational thought. Images burned in her mind, but she could not name them. Voices called to her, screamed at her, purred softly in her ear, but she did not understand them. There was only the pain, and the darkness, and the thing in the darkness that fed on her pain. It did not understand names, or images, or voices either. It knew only pain, and darkness, and a terrible, terrible hunger that would never end. For it to end, there would have to be time, and the thing in the darkness did not know time, either. And then, paradoxically, time reasserted itself. Reality rushed back into place, and the black eternity that had swallowed her spat her back out again. The sudden absence of pain was almost a shock in itself, like a person on fire being suddenly thrown into ice water. Sephihin Lassos doubled over and retched, spitting bile onto her tormentor's polished wingtip shoes. A gloved hand picked her up by the hair and slammed her against the wall. This really is very disappointing, Fisher said. I had hoped that we could have a pleasant little chat, just the two of us. But you insisted on being difficult. He raised his cane and rubbed the black, crystalline orb against her cheek. She could hear the thing inside it, could feel it reaching for her, but for the moment, Fisher kept it on its leash. She still convulsed in horror as she felt it brush against her mind. The vampire leaned in close to her ear, reeking of death and perfume. There's no need for this, little pet, he whispered. There's no one you have to impress with how brave and how strong you are. Just tell me what my master wants to know, and then you can go back to the tank. The tank. Her prison cell. And yet, perversely, her salvation. The tank would buy her time. Keep her alive until... Well, the possibilities were still in flux... A lot of things could happen. But she needed to stay alive if she wanted to see any of them. She opened her mouth to speak, to tell him what he wanted to know. And then one of the others shut it again. We can't. The thought rang out clearly in her mind. There's too much at stake. We want to live, came another thought just as clearly. We want to go home. If we give him what he wants, he'll never let us go said a third thought. Malcolm thinks having us will save him from what's coming. We'll be in the tank forever. Death is better than slavery, 
said the first. That's not your choice to make. Then let's make it together. Does it really even matter? Death comes for all of us. Don't think like that. Silence. Resistance. Sefi groaned as the chorus of thoughts overwhelmed her. It was so hard to focus, so hard to know what to do. And so she did nothing, as darkness and horror swallowed her once more. A minute or an eternity later, she came back to herself, hanging limply from her own living hair as it writhed in Fisher's grip. You have no idea what you have there, do you? she asked weakly. Fisher regarded the cane for a moment. A fair statement, perhaps. But I know where it comes from, and I know what it can do. His lips parted in another nightmare grin. And I know that it is always hungry. In that, I feel we have a special kinship. He let go of her. She crumpled bonelessly to the floor. The fever was rising again, clouding her thoughts, and she was tired, so tired. I will ask you again, he said. Who is the White Widow? The voices clamored for silence, but they had been weakened by the thing in the orb. None of them wanted to face it again. Sefi delayed him with a crumb of truth. She is the spider in the web. She weaves your destruction from beneath you. Why? For revenge. Revenge for what? Not what, Sefi said. Whom? The widow counts the prince's debt in the lives he has taken. Those he controls because he can, and those he destroys because he cannot control. She will take from him in return, stealing what she can steal, subverting what she may subvert, and destroying what remains. Fisher smiled sardonically. Will she indeed? And who is she to challenge our prince? She's the voice of his victims, and the hand of their retribution. The vampire snarled and twisted his fingers in her hair, pulling it painfully taut. He pressed the orb harshly against her throat, its black magic sending tremors of nausea into her gut. Do not play me for a fool. I want a name. We do not see names. A description, then. What does this white widow look like? Where does she live? These things are hidden. Powerful magic surrounds her, veils her from our sight. We cannot see her, only her works and those who serve her. And they are? Legion, she said. Fisher growled and threw her across the bare little office where he'd brought her for this conversation. The edge of the desk hit her in the small of the back, and for a moment the purely physical pain distracted her from the delirium of fever and the soul-sickening wrongness of the thing in the orb. "'You are beginning to exhaust your usefulness, little one,' Fisher said, as he slowly crossed the room with Kane outstretched. "'If your information on the widow is so wonderfully unspecific, then perhaps you can describe how you came to this power.' Surely you remember your trip to the rift. A fresh cascade of images washed through Sefi's mind. Her calling circle, traced in glowing lines in the hard-packed soil near the rift's edge. A shimmering city of light, a city that was not a city, 
and the great chorus that resonated through every line and curve and splash of radiance. She heard her own voice form the words of the spell, saw Hal with his arms outstretched as he called the name of his mother, felt the magic take hold and rush outward, touching the great chorus, joining with it, drawing those who felt a kinship with the humans who stood at the rift's edge. Yes, Fisher purred, as he knelt down and took her jaw in his hands. That stirred up some memories, I can see. Now tell me, Dove, what happened at the rift? Sephi's jaw locked shut, the others helping her to be strong. She shook her head, defiant. The blackness swallowed her yet again, and in this eternity she felt the thing devour more than her pain. She could not say what it was she lost, for without time there was no before and no after. She felt it only as an awareness of absence, of being less than she was meant to be. And where she had been hollowed out, the darkness had come inside her. She and the others would have screamed, had there been air and lungs and time with which to do it. Instead, a single thought stretched through their joined awareness, the infinite void reflecting it like an endless hall of mirrors. No, 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 no. Time rushed back, and with it came the scream. It tore itself from her throat like a living thing, a savage, wordless cry at the way she had just been violated. She could feel the thing like poison inside her, a voice of bitter hate and ugliness and destruction that scraped at the back of her thoughts like claws across a chalkboard. She curled into a ball, wrapping her hair around her like a shell, and she beat her fists against her ears to try to silence those dark whispers. The others drew in close around her wounded psyche, trembling from their own injuries, but determined to protect their host. She was vaguely aware that the scream was more than physical, that it resonated outward through realms of thought that she had only dimly begun to know. She heard other thoughts echo back to her from somewhere close, acknowledging the message and responding to it, though she could not understand what they said. At the moment, it hardly seemed important. Eventually, her scream died from lack of breath, and then she heard Fisher laughing, a low, amused chuckle that degenerated into something dark and maddened. The vampire clapped the fingers of one hand lightly against his other palm, as if he were at the opera and had just heard the lead soprano perform a magnificent aria. Oh, yes, it hurts, it hurts, he caroled, circling around her with a stutter step that was almost a dance. You want it to stop. You'll do anything to make it stop. Sephi's whole body convulsed in sobs, but she managed to nod. I can make it stop, Fisher cooed, tapping the cane against the side of her head. I can pull that nasty little thing right out of you. All you have to do is tell me what happened at the rift. Otherwise, his grin widened. He goes back in for another bite. No, Sephi whispered. Please, I'll... She couldn't say any more. 
Fisher was evidently satisfied, because he gestured once more with the cane. Something black and smoking flew out of Seffy's mouth and ears, burning as it went, vanishing inside the orb. The dark voice inside her ceased, replaced by a cold, hollow emptiness. In the sudden stillness that followed, Seffy could hear the other thoughts coming closer. The vampire grabbed her and pulled her to her feet again. Her strength had left her, though, and she crumpled back against the desk, limbs flopping. Even her hair could no longer support her. Fisher draped her spread eagle over the top of the desk, then came around and knelt beside her head, his mouth at her ear. There, you see? I'm as good as my word. Now then, tell me about the rift. Seffy could sense those other minds coming very close now, and she reached out to them with every ounce of strength she and her passengers could muster. Help! Please help! Help! Fisher laughed. Help! My dear pulpit, who do you think is going to help you? We are in one dark, quiet little warehouse, among hundreds on this end of town. You can scream your pretty little head off all you like. No one notices what we are doing here. No one cares what we are doing here. And no one is coming to save you. As if on cue, the door to the office burst open, and a wash of brilliant light flooded the room. Fisher shrieked and recoiled behind the desk, as Seffy felt the presence of another great power enter the room. It was a power equal in every respect to the thing in the orb, but diametrically opposed to it, and it was angry. Fisher! bellowed Janus Starson, as he strode into the room with a lemisil at the ready. Come out, coward! Come out and face your final death! Fisher reached around the edge of the desk and shot a blast of dark magic at the Lightbringer. Janus caught it on Elemisil's blade, and the bolt disappeared in a puff of smoke. Then he held out a twin-cross amulet in his free hand and snarled, Lambaquela! Golden bands of light flew out from the amulet, plunged over the edge of the desk, and wrapped themselves around Fisher. The vampire gritted his teeth and wrapped his hands around the cane, clearly fighting to resist the spell, and just as clearly losing. The binding took hold and seeped into him, shutting down his magic. That sick, oily darkness in the room was abruptly silenced. Janus was nearing the edge of the desk now, and Fisher darted to the other side of the room with vampiric speed. He lifted his hands, palms outward, one still clutching the useless cane. Hold up now, Lightbringer, he said. He was trying for his earlier aplomb and failing. It's a fair cop. I surrender. He tossed the cane on the floor in front of him. Not resisting arrest, you see, so there's no need to repeat the uh, misunderstanding that killed old Braddock. Janus glared at him, then slowly lowered his sword. Fisher, you're a craven, a sadist, and a parasite. Fisher simpered and half-bowed. But a live one, after a fashion. After a fashion, Janus agreed, 
and nodded to someone in the next room. A roar of gunfire tore through Fisher's body, all of it aimed to cross the room well away from Sephi or Janus. Bullets and shotgun shells tore ragged chunks of meat from the vampire's body, painting his undead organs all over the room. Blows to the knees and ankles collapsed his body and sent him to the floor, where the shots continued to tear him to bloody bits. Fisher screamed, horribly conscious through all of it, as his vampiric regeneration kept trying to repair the damage, and the bullets made more and more work for it. The guns fell silent, and Catherine Catane stalked into the room, closely followed by her elven partner. She stopped in front of Fisher's mutilated form, her boots squelching in the blood-soaked carpet. She slid another magazine into her pistol and looked down at Fisher with cold, hard eyes. Right now you're probably wondering how long that binding's gonna hold, she said. After all, you can't shapeshift without your magic, can you? No bat form, no fogging out. She kicked him hard in the jaw, snapping his neck back. Something cracked under the blow, and Fisher's body went limp. One swollen, bloodshot eye opened and turned in Kate's direction, waiting. Kate hunkered down and stared the vampire straight in the eye. Understand, she hissed, that this is in no way a negotiation. As charming as your company might be, I do not make deals with parasites. You will do what I say, when I say it, or I will incinerate your sorry ass immediately. This is your one and only warning. Do you understand? Fisher's eye twitched. He could not speak. He could not draw air into his lungs. But he mouthed the words, I understand. Good. Now tell me where your lackeys took our spellcasting gear. Fisher's lips moved. Black skimmer. Parking lot out back. Keys in my left pocket. Kate felt over the tattered mess of Fisher's body, found the keys, tossed them to her partner. The elf nodded and left without a word. There was a handkerchief in the pocket as well, which the bullets seemed to have missed. Kate pulled it out and started cleaning the blood off her hands. Fisher had fed recently, and there was a lot of it. From what I've seen, Janus's binding is probably good for about six hours. So you're going to have a nice long time to sit and think about what you've done. She nodded in Janus's direction. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Lightbringers scrape you into a box and leave you there while your court cases work themselves out. Assault, kidnapping, suborning a police officer. Oh, they're going to have fun with you. Unless you decide to turn Crown's evidence on your boss, of course. She tucked the bloody handkerchief back into his pocket and rose to her feet. Think about it, Fish. Fisher just closed his eye, wincing. Kate went over to the desk and looked down into Seffy's face, as if Seffy could see her any better there than she could elsewhere in the room. Seffy smiled weakly. You came, she whispered. You heard. Kate forced a smile. 
What, your future sense didn't tell you that was going to happen? The lines are tangled. Too many choices. Another fever chill ran through her, and she felt a fresh outbreak of sweat on her skin. There aren't many left where I survive. A shadow passed over Kate's face. Then we're going to make damn sure we choose one where you do. Let's hurry up and get you to Lothanasi HQ. No, Sefi said, shaking her head. That path is closed. We lost too much life energy to that thing. She pointed weakly in the direction of the cane. Janus looked over at it and glowered. Black magic. Very strong. He pulled out his communicator and opened the channel. Candace, contact BMR, code Omega-37. Recommend full containment unit. A woman's voice came back over the comm. Copy, boss. I'll let you know when I've got an ETA. Kate gripped Sefi's forearm, drawing her focus back to her. Where can we take you that will help you survive this? Only one place, Sefi said. Kaya's hot under Citadel. Kate's eyebrows shot up. How are we going to manage that? There's a way, Janus said. The Lightbringers have access to a secret tunnel that runs 800 meters outside the Citadel. It goes straight to the VIP parking garage under the Western Minaret. From there, Kaya can grant us entrance to the catacombs. She can, but will she? She has already opened the door, Sefi said. Misty is there now, with Morgan and Julie. Kate gaped in surprise, but she recovered quickly. Good enough for me, she said. Let's blaze. And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. So, our heroes are converging on Kaya's Nexus. But the biggest questions are still unanswered. What happened to Project Lightpath? Where did the symbionts come from? And why does the Telvari Rift even exist? The truth will finally be revealed next week. Dorothy Parker said, If you have any young friends who aspire to become writers, the second greatest favor you can do them is to present them with copies of the Elements of Style. The first greatest, of course, is to shoot them now, while they're happy. If it's all the same to you, Dorothy, I'll pick option A. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 6,670 words this week, over the course of 10 hours, for an average writing speed of 667 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script... I have gone 102 days without breaking my chain. I continued working on The Lost and the Least this week, and got up to the middle of chapter 34. The manuscript is now over 113,000 words and counting. I also started working on a new story, which I plan on sharing over on the Patreon feed in a series of live readings. I'm not going to say much about this one yet, because I've tried to write this story three times since 2007, and I really don't want to jinx it. I'm hoping to have it done in time for Halloween. 
Over in the Patreon feed, we've just gotten some very exciting news on a new feature for all Patreon accounts. If you're a patron on a feed that has audio content, you can now get a custom RSS feed to have these bonus episodes delivered to you. This means that special episodes can now be sent directly to your iTunes or Podcatcher, just like any other podcast. Your custom feed remains active as long as you're a patron. If you're already a Patreon patron, you received a message this week to let you know about these new RSS feeds. Just copy and paste the resulting link into your podcatcher of choice, and you'll be ready to go. Now that this is online, I'm going to make it a point to get more bonus audio content out to the Patreon feed. It won't all be stories, and some of it will be raw, unedited content, like interviews and live reads. But if you're a fan of this show, I think you'll enjoy it. All my Patreon patrons receive access to my audio content, so even if you can only afford a dollar a month, go ahead and sign up. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your comments in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641 715 3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show and want to help other people find out about it, leave a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference. That's our show for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.